Welcome to Institute for the Future's Future Now podcast. Today, we're exploring an intriguing question. How did we become a society of household CFOs? In this episode, which is an audio version of a live video presentation from IFTF's 10-year forecast event on March 1, 2023, IFTF Executive Director Marina Gorbis and University of Michigan, Professor of Management and Organizations Jerry Davis, dive into this phenomenon and its implications for our society. Marina opens the discussion by highlighting how people in the U.S. have become chief financial officers of their households, managing their investments and financial futures. Then Jerry takes us on a journey through the history of American society, illustrating the shift from a corporate-centered society to a market-centered one. He explains how finance has become the primary lens through which we view the world, influencing our language, culture, and even our political landscape. Jerry warns that the pervasive nature of this mindset is having corrosive effects on our lives and the way we view the world. Join us for this captivating episode as we delve into the historical and societal impacts of financialization and consider the future of our world as we continue to navigate through this financial lens. Let me ask you a question. In the past few days, have you been anxiously checking your retirement accounts to see if they're invested in potentially risky portfolios? Have you been calling your banker or financial advisor only to hear that their voicemail boxes are full? Well, if the answer is yes, then you're one of 60% of people in the U.S. who have of necessity been turned into CFOs, chief financial officers of their households. So how did we get here? Was it a political project to turn us all into investors and CFOs, transforming our language and cultural assumptions, forcing us to see everything through the lens of investments and returns. And in light of the recent failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, we have to ask ourselves, is that what we want to be? Is this a kind of society that's truly stable? Are we really getting the outcomes we want from it? But before we propose solutions, we need to understand how we got here in the first place. This is, after all, one of IFTF's core principles. You can't think about the future without understanding the past, without examining how we got to the present. In this video, University of Michigan Professor of Management and Organizations, Jerry Davis, does precisely that. He describes how we got into our current register of extreme financialization, and its effects on society. I've been thinking a lot about how finance became our register, our way of understanding the world. And in some sense, finance has become this master metaphor for the way we think about the world in our lives. We use phrases like human capital and social capital and cultural capital as if they were true rather than a metaphor. And so I wanted to figure out how do we get to this particular situation? And I want to take us back to uh, what I think of as a Copernican shift in American society from a world of organization men who were sort of climbing the career ladders at General Motors. That was a corporate centered society to a more market centered society where we talk about everything as a flavor of capital. And you have to sort of cast your mind back to the immediate post-war era to fully appreciate this world. So this is a picture of the Ford River Rouge plant where both my grandfathers were welders um, for many decades, uh, making Model A's and other things. And Ford was a really 
vertically integrated enterprise where they made all of the components, many of the components uh, right on site, like steel and glass and so on. And it was really an enveloping economic institution. So Peter Drucker, the famous management theorist, came to visit Detroit and the Rouge plant to try to understand our contemporary society. And he came to this great conclusion that he wrote about in a sort of manifesto published in Harper's Magazine over three issues. And he called the first one Revolution by Mass Production. And what he was claiming was that mass production wasn't just a way to make cars, that mass production had become kind of this societal operating system, that mass production underlay the way that we uh, did agriculture or healthcare or education or even the way we fought World War II. All of them were built on these principles of mass production. So it really was an operating system. And it was not just an operating system. It was a it was a way that shaped how people understood their place in the world. Um, so he described manufacturing corporations, big enterprises being the true symbol of our social order and the industrial enterprise, the structure which actually underlies all our society can be seen. So when you wander around that assembly line, you're getting sort of a synecdoche of the entire way society operated. So my grandfathers, the welders, were absorbing this worldview, evidently. Um, and the thought was working in a company, working in a factory, working in manufacturing or wherever would shape your worldview. Well, where was finance in all of this? And he had a really sort of spicy answer. Where was Wall Street? Uh, nowhere. Ambitious people didn't work on Wall Street. They didn't work in finance. That was sort of sort of. Dartmouth grads that didn't do well at math, they could go to work in a brokerage. But as uh, Drucker put it here, only 20 years ago, the bright graduate of the Harvard Business School aimed at a job with the New York Stock Exchange House. He now seeks employment with a steel, oil, or automobile company. So they weren't headed to Manhattan. They were coming to Pittsburgh or Detroit because that's where the real power uh, and money were. Well, that seems shocking. Um, you don't have to be Nostradamus to, to, to know what came next. Manufacturing employment is increasingly rare in the U.S. There aren't a lot of welders like my grandfather's anymore. This diagram is showing the percentage of the U.S. employment in manufacturing, retail, and federal government from 1939 until today. As so I just downloaded this from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you'll see that manufacturing employment has been on a continuous downward spiral, essentially, uh, since the Second World War, uh, a nearly continuous drop as a percentage of the workforce. More people work in retail than work in manufacturing. And if you look at who are the biggest employers in the U.S. today, you see that it is overwhelmingly retailers, Walmart, Amazon, Home Depot, Kroger, Target, Starbucks, Lowe's, overwhelmingly the jobs are in retail, not manufacturing. So it's not at General Motors or GE or U.S. Steel or AT&T with people in career employment. And uh, retail is where uh, wages are pretty low, as you can see here, and turnover is pretty high, not quite the same enveloping institution. Meanwhile, you look at General Motors itself, the, the archetypal American corporation of the 20th century, you can see that as of now, GM has about as many workers as it did in 1926, which is kind of an astonishing thing. Well, what has replaced mass production as a register? Well, one clue that we get from this is that Americans have increasingly become a society of investors. Beginning in the early 1980s, corporate employers started transitioning employees from defined benefit pensions, where they pay you a check when you retire from that company, 
uh, to a defined contribution plan like the 401k. So that orange line is showing the proportion of American households who are invested in the stock market. And you see it went from about 20% in the 80s to over half by 2001. And it's not just rich people that are investing these days. Um, if you look at who shareholders were in the early 1950s, it was only about 10% of the population. Only half of the richest people owned stock. Most shareholders owned only one or two companies. Uh, and almost no one under 30 owned stock. Fast forward to 2001, most households are invested in the stock market. That's 90% of those in the top decile, but 12% of those in the bottom quintile. Uh, stock ownership is pretty widely spread, not by amounts, but just participation in the market. Overwhelmingly, people own through diversified funds, through ETFs or S&P 500 index funds uh, from Vanguard. And about half those from 18 to 35 own stock. So this is really different. We are increasingly looking like a society of investors. So maybe stock ownership could have that same level of impact on people's worldview that working in a factory or working in a corporation might have. Well, it turns out that uh, this idea had crossed the minds of a set of fans in the Republican Party in the 1990s. Um, they came up with this idea of the uh, investor class claiming that when people own stock, they start to think like an investor, they start reading the Wall Street Journal, and they turn Republican. And this was not just sort of an idle chit chat. If you remember 20 years ago when George W. Bush wanted to spend his second term privatizing Social Security, Grover Norquist described the agenda behind this. It was rooted in this theory of the investor class. So he said that more shareholders mean more Republicans making the party a true and permanent majority. Obviously, privatizing Social Security is a key to getting this done. So the point wasn't just to privatize Social Security so that we could have uh, to put it on a better fiscal bearing or whatever, but that shareholders think like and vote like Republicans. And so you could change the register by privatizing Social Security. You may remember what happened in 2008, and possibly it's a good thing that we didn't have a whole lot of retirees invested in the stock market when it dropped 60%. So in some sense, this sounds like a crazy thought that buying stock would shape people's worldview. But think about it. Think about walking through the airport and you see uh, S&P 500 down 12%. If you don't own any stock, you say, I'm going to find the McDonald's. If you do own stock, you might be thinking, now I can't retire for two more years. It can really reach fairly deeply into your view of the world. I think about my sister. Uh, in her early 40s, uh, she was widowed and, and put whatever money she got from Workman's Comp into a Fidelity account. And every day, to this day, she wakes up in the morning, puts on the coffee, and then logs onto her Fidelity account to see... Uh, how much money did I make or lose yesterday? And if the market's up, it's red lobster for lunch. And if the market's down, it's a tuna sandwich for lunch. And it didn't just stop with the stock market. Things that you can buy and sell on financial markets have spread pretty broadly. So thanks to the creative genius of Wall Street, more and more things have been bundled together and sold as bonds. We all know about mortgage securitization, which was partly behind the 2008 crisis, but 
Name any cash flow and Wall Street has turned it into a bond. Auto loans, student loans, corporate loans, David Bowie's royalties, um, even your neighbor's life insurance policies. There are vendors who will buy people's life insurance payoffs and turn them into bonds. So you can go online and find ads aimed at the elderly saying, if you want some cash now, name us as your beneficiary. We will take over the payment of your life insurance contract and we'll give you a cash settlement that you can use now rather than saving it for your heirs. Well, arguably, this has turned every household into something like a bank. The, the lower transaction costs for participating in financial markets turn households into both investors and issuers. So investors I talked about, more and more people are invested through individual pension plans, retail mutual funds. Most households are invested in the stock market in the U.S. But we're also issuers, like a company issuing bonds. Our home mortgages have been securitized. So homeowners essentially have bondholders out there. Auto loans, student loans, credit card debt, insurance settlements. Essentially, we are turning homeowners into CFOs, chief financial officers, buying and selling these various flavors of capital. What's the impact of this? Well, I gave you one account from Grover Norquist and friends. The optimist believes that the democratization of ownership will turn people into sophisticated, economically literate Ayn Rand fans who know what LIBOR is and what the Fed does. I have to admit that my sister, the fourth grade teacher, does know what LIBOR is. I don't know where that bears on this theory. The, the pessimist's account would be that finance will turn everybody into a sort of self-styled portfolio manager who sees everything in the prism through the prism of investment, talking about everything is capital. And I'm here to tell you, uh, concluding that essentially, I think the pessimists have won and they've gotten it right. Everything has been turned into capital now. If you're carrying around your smartphone, you can check out uh, how the stock market is doing uh, and just determine whether you're going to have Barolo or Boone's Farm with dinner. Kids on bus stops are now using Robinhood to trade uh, uh, options and futures. A FICO app can tell you whether you can skip another month's credit card payment. The Zillow app can tell you whether household value is going up or down and whether you still have time to refinance and move to Canada. Well, this one hasn't happened yet, but I think it's a great idea. It's the Facebook Social Capital Asset Pricing Model app, or SCAPM. Uh, this app could tell you when you go to a conference or go to a meeting or a social event, whom should you be shorting and whom should you be going long on in your personal relationships? Either this is an episode of Black Mirror or we've just sort of wandered into this strange realm where finance has taken over the world. And I just want to close by saying this is not a neutral metaphor. Finance is not a neutral metaphor that talking about everything in terms of capital can potentially have really corrosive effects. When we think about education as investing in our human capital, that changes the, the sort of the way that we deliver education, what kind of majors people have. And I think we want to be alert to that, how our register in finance can really shape the way that we talk about our world. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their future and drive change in themselves and their organizations. To find out more and to subscribe to the Future Now podcast, visit iftf.org.